All right, so we're finishing up New Testament words. Um, there's a couple I left off that I thought we could do without, but I did include all the major ones. So once we finish the words, then we've got the word bank necessary, and we'll roll right into theology. And I don't know how much, how many weeks we'll spend in the theology of sin. That's basically where we're headed to next, the theology of sin. Get your vocabulary, work on your theology. Because if you understand the words that the Lord chose to use to describe our sins, the theology works itself out. Okay, but you do have to understand the vocabulary, the definitions, the context, and all those sorts of things. And then theology is just, I don't, I mean, I always say, I don't care what you believe. It, it, the Lord's never going to ask you, now, what did you believe? It's about His Word. And so we work hard to understand His Word. So alpha privative is, only works in Greek uh, that I know of. And it's the same thing in English as our, and yes, I'm pronouncing this right, un. Okay, so in English, you have your word, but we negate the word with the UN. So important becomes unimportant. Okay, and likewise, popular becomes all we do is put this little prefix and we absolutely change the meaning 180 degrees. Right? See how that works? So now, those words may. <laughs> A little better. <laughs> so all languages, you know, work the same way. Uh, this is one of those unusual moments where English actually makes sense. Greek, it works wonderfully. Uh, instead of any kind of un, well, I don't have a, can't mark on the TV, you, you've got the alpha, okay? And that's why... That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, alpha, beta, you know how that works. So we take the first letter of the Greek alphabet, alpha, and you put it in front of a great many of words and you negate their meaning and make it absolutely reverse to what it means. Okay, so that's all we're doing is we're taking the last few words and they're known as alpha privatives and you get the meaning of the root word, you put the alpha in front of it and you undo it and it's not a good thing. It's never a good thing, okay? So let's look at some of these words. Uh, the first word is, and I'll, I'll write these out for those of you who are taking notes. Uh, I'll write it out in English, that is, so you can kind of see it, because I forgot to do that on my slide. Uh, the first word that you see there in Greek is pronounced patho. And it means to cause someone to come to a particular point of view, a particular course of action, to convince somebody, to persuade somebody. Okay? Now, if you think about this, this is all that we do. For some bizarre reason, we share our, Caleb and I were just talking about this, we share our opinions on Facebook and all over social media, and we have all these conversations about all sorts of views and opinions of cultural things, political things, because we're trying to convince somebody to agree with us, okay? So that's the word that you would use here, patho. You're trying to convince or persuade somebody to see your point of view, okay? Here's an example in Matthew 27 of this word, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. So there you go. When Pilate was asking the question, you know, who do you want me to release? The religious leaders began persuading or patho, 
convincing the crowd that Jesus needs to be crucified, that Barabbas is the one that needs to be released. Okay? So you put the alpha in front of it, and it becomes ah, patho, and it means literally an obstinate rejection of the will of God. Now, all the convincing and persuading that Scripture, the Word of God, is trying to do in your life, you remain unconvinced, unpersuaded. Every time you try to share the gospel with somebody and they do not repent and believe in the gospel, it's an ah-pathos situation. They remain unconvinced, unpersuaded about everything that you just said. Okay? So you can see that this is a very important word. It's translated a couple of different ways. Obedience is the... Or Disobedience, rather, is the most common way. Uh, we've already talked about Romans 2.8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and apatho the truth, they are not persuaded by the truth, but rather they obey unrighteousness. They receive the judgment of wrath and indignation. So you can see this is a highly culpable word. This is a big-time slap in the face to the Word of God, morally offensive to God, you remain unpersuaded even though God told you the truth of it. Now, I'm working my way back through Exodus, started with Exodus and Moses. And if you'll go back through that and think about how many times Moses tried to convince the people that God was about to deliver them and how many times they argued with Moses until the point they absolutely are delivered and they even though they watched all the Egyptians die in the sea, they continue to remain unpersuaded. Immediately they become thirsty and they say, were there not enough grave sites in Egypt that you brought us out in this desert to die? They just absolutely remain unconvinced that God was going to take care of them, even though he just destroyed all their enemies. So you're like, how could anyone be so ignorant? Well, take a look at your own life. How many times do we get worried and anxious and remain unpersuaded that our Father can't take care of us? Right? How much do we have to see and understand of God in order for us to be persuaded that I can really trust God in every situation? Every situation. So you see how this word works. Romans 10, 21 uh, But as for Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's a wonderful passage to give you a picture of what this word means. God has continually worked hard to help this people trust Him. And they've refused to trust Him. And then you have to keep in mind that these are the children of God that He's working hard to try to get them to trust Him. So if anybody on the planet ought to walk by faith and trust the Lord, it should be the church, right? And then you get so confused about why we don't trust Him. It, it's a bizarre thing. Romans 11.30, Just as you were once disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. I should have left that one out because the context is tough. This is the passage. I include this one because this is the one Cody was dealing with Sunday. It uses this word, apatho, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were unconvinced or unpersuaded? So we see that they were not able to enter the peace or the promised land because of 
a lack of faith. Now, the reason that I included that is because apatho is set in absolute contrast of having faith in God. So you can see how serious of an offense this is. God calls us to faith, but when we remain unconvinced, we're exercising the opposite of faith. We are choosing not to trust God. So that's how this word works. It's like, again, it's terribly offensive to God. Uh, and you don't pick this, or I don't pick this up, I, I guess, because you get so used to reading English words. But you just, you know, if you don't spend a lot of time in Hebrews 3, 18 and 19 and see how horrible disobedience is, and this is what Cody was getting on to us about Sunday, you say you've trusted in Christ, yet you disobey the Word of God. How does that work? Because that's completely opposite of you saying that you have faith in God. Because faith in God is realized through obedience. And so these words, you have to pay attention to these words. You, you see the contrast here. Apatho is a lack of faith, basically, because you're not letting God. First, first Peter 4, 17 for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who remain unconvinced about the gospel? That would be a good translation of this passage. Of those who remain unpersuaded by the gospel of God. This passage came to mind, I don't know, one day this week. I was watching things going on in the world. I forgot what it was. But anyway, you just get to the point where you're just ready for Christ to return and judgment to fall, particularly on this country, and burn it from one end to the other because of its ignorance and sinfulness. But then I remembered 1 Peter 4, and I was like, oh yeah, but it will start with the church. But then you realize, you know, it really already has. I mean, we're already dealing with judgment. I brought up. Uh, when was it Sunday night we were talking about homosexuality and I don't think I mentioned this Sunday night but when we went to Maine the state we flew into Portland the city got out of the airport and had an uber take us to where the car rental place was we passed I don't know over a half a dozen churches and every one of them had the flags out in front of the church saying we welcome everyone you know, judgment's already fallen on the house of the Lord because we look just like the world. And so we have to realize that. All right, a couple of other ones. This is the biggest word, so I gave you the most scripture, I think. Uh, but the Jews, this is really good. Acts 14, and we'll talk about this in just a second. But the Jews who remained unconvinced stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So Paul's in a particular city. And he was preaching the gospel, and those who refused to hear the gospel because of the apatho, they remain unconvinced, stirred up a problem against those who were believing. Which my first question was, I wonder why our gospel preaching doesn't do that anymore. I mean, that's a really serious question that I wrestle with often. Why is it that when we preach the gospel, nobody gets stirred up or angry? That's bizarre to me. Makes me question the gospel that I preach. Acts 19, very similar context. When some were becoming hardened, 
and remaining unconvinced. In fact, they went on to speak evil of the way of Christ before the people. Paul withdrew from them and he took away the disciples and he began teaching daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this was in Ephesus. So when Paul preached, those who were becoming hardened and remained unconvinced began to speak evil about the gospel. And Paul had to go somewhere else. Again, we must be doing something wrong with the gospel because we, we seem to be welcoming everybody in with the gospel. Uh, here's another one of those passages that throws the contrast for you. He who believes, that I don't have my little pointer here. This is the word for faith. This is, what, this is how we say that everyone's saved, right? Faith alone, certainly it is. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And all the church said, Amen. But he who remains unconvinced or unpersuaded about the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Apatho. But again, we translate that does not obey because there's really no difference between faith and obedience. I, Cody said Sunday, it's two sides of the same coin. It really is. I don't know how we've managed to cut the coin in half, but we really have tried. But it's not. It's the same thing. All right, next word. Anybody got any questions about that word? Again, obstinate points us to responsible. It's not as though you don't know, right? It's just an absolute, I don't believe you. Let's keep talking about this. Why do we sin? Does this word play a role in that? How does this word play a role in that? I think you trace a lot of sin back uh, to us wanting to take matters in our own hands and instead of trusting in God. Absolutely. This is, did God really say? It's the same, same argument right. that was in the garden. Are you, are, is Eve really persuaded that God said that? Same, same argument. Right. All moral sin can be trans, uh, traced back to apatho. Because God says he's the ultimate pleasure and joy. He's the ultimate satisfier of the soul. But morally we say, yeah, but I'll take it into my own hands and I think this will satisfy my soul. You know. God tells us, gives us a great many warnings about money and finances. But then we go, eh, I just think more is better. And we remain unconvinced at the Word of God about certain things like that. Um, I think you could give any sort of sin much thought, and it goes back to the fact that you may remain unconvinced about the Word of God because you actually know the truth of it. You just don't believe it, right? I really couldn't think of one that I I couldn't that I gave thought to. I'll put it that way. Wouldn't it be wonderful, and I know we will be like this one day, but wouldn't it be wonderful if, if you read the Word of God and went, Oh, that's awesome. My mind has been changed. But, I mean, we should. We really should. 
All right, next word. Is that a long O or two shorts? Two shorts is the same spell. Yeah, okay. Nomos is the word for law. Uh, huh? You didn't go with two shorts. When you said I didn't that. say nomos. I know you said. What did you say? What do you say? You said nomos. You gave it one and one short. You gave oh, namas. How do you say that? Namas. Namas. Yeah. You say namas. Because I'm thinking of this one. No more. <laughs> yeah, I said it in Spanish. Namas. Yes, thank you. I thought that sounded Namas. All right. Translated law. It's always the law of God. Romans 2.13. For it's not the hearers of the, there's your word, who are just before God, but the doers of the namas will be justified. Law. Okay? So, you put the alpha privative in front of it, and it becomes against the law, or lawlessness. And so, many of your New Testament words that deal with lawlessness is anti-law. That's what that means. Okay? Uh, what do you call the people who profess to be Christ that disregard the law? Antinomians. Antinomians. So it's the same thing, anti-law. Okay, just reject the law. Thank you. Romans 4, 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Romans six nineteen. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So, acts that we do that are against the law lead to what? Who said it? I didn't hear. Someone in the back said lawlessness. More lawlessness. Yeah. Um, you want to know why you struggle with sin? Because there's sin in your life. And it just adds up. And you won't root it all out. You leave a little bit behind. It's like pulling up that wild Bermuda that I can't get out of the blueberries. You jerk it out of the ground, you leave the roots underground, and you go back out the next day, and it's like spread all over the place. It's just like, can I not kill this stuff, right? That's sin. We're like, okay, I'll stop this, stop this, stop this, but I'm going to keep going here. It'll all be back. Because lawlessness leads to lawlessness. It all has to be cut, burnt, pulled, destroyed, or it just leads to more. First uh, John 3 shows the direct connection with sin. Everyone who practices sin also practices this anti-law behavior against God because sin is anti-law or anti-truth. Might be a good way to translate that. Sin is always going against the revealed will of God in His Word. How about that? That's what sin is. Uh, Zimic says, Direct quote here. This, de <coughs> excuse me, this definition of sin sets forth its essential character as the rejection of the law or the will of God 
and the substitution of the will of self. Back in the garden. Eve knew. And she literally said, no thanks. I'll do what I think is best. You, you, you think about this. So we tell our children what to do, right? And they don't do it. This is the word, all right? Anamas, right? Against the will of the parent. But if you'll think about this, I can't think of an age where we stop acting this way. We get older, our children encourage us to do certain things that will be best for us or best for them. Not going to do it. No, I'll do what I want to do. Um, and all of us in between in the Middle Ages, wow, we just live life how we see fit. Right? This is never not a problem for us. This is what is so sad. You know? Again, wouldn't it be nice for anybody to walk up to us that we knew to be a brother or sister in Christ who loves the Lord and, and gives us a device and we'll go, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do what I thought I was going to do. I'm going to do what you said. If we were that humble, right? This, this word lacks all humility whatsoever. It's just the commitment to do what we want. And it happens from birth till the grave. Never stops. Uh, Second Peter, okay. Challenge some of y'all and connect something to what we said Sunday night. Second Peter 2.8. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So Peter's writing this, but who is he talking about? Huh? Lot. Who said Lot? Lot. What is the context of what he is talking about? Sodom and Gomorrah. So what are the lawless deeds? Because now we found ourselves in Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the lawless deed in Sodom and Gomorrah? Homosexuality. Homosexuality. How does Peter interpret Old Testament homosexuality? Lawless deeds. Were they given the law? They knew better already because we studied this Sunday night in, in Romans 1, 18 and following. How about that? So when you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, when the Lord rained down fire upon them, never preached the gospel to them, never said anything about sexual sin to them, yet God destroyed all of them in judgment. And Peter calls it anamas, they rejected the will of God. You're like, wait, what? Romans 1 to it, or... Romans 1, 18, they knew it was written on their heart that homosexuality is not a natural thing. It's against the will of God. And so Peter interprets that as a lawless deed. It's against the law. And I'm like, whoa. See, these connections are all over the place. It was never okay, and everybody knows it's not, whether they know, know Christ or not. So I thought that was pretty fascinating there. Any questions about that word?
Anybody struggle with humility? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> All right. You got me messed up on my words. Dikia is the word for righteousness that we've already talked about. Now, when you put the alpha privative, obviously it's going to become unrighteousness, right? So, where's my pen? So you got this. So the word for righteousness with the alpha in front becomes adikia, which means unrighteousness. What's interesting is how many different words in the Old Testament, of course we're talking about the Septuagint, uses this root. Now one form of the root, and I didn't put the forms up here because I didn't see any need in that, you've got 24 different Old Testament words. When you get to the adikia, this particular root, you've got 36 different words. So unrighteousness, in other words, refusing to do what's right, is translated with just a ton of words all over the place. So you might find this word meaning several different things, and we'd think it means something else in English, but really it just comes back to refusing to do what's right. That's all it means. So Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness, this is the root, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So we put the alpha privative in front of it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in refusing to do what's right. And that's where we'll be Sunday morning in Sermon on 118. But that's the reason the wrath of God is poured out because they refuse to do what is right even though they know what is right. Y'all struggle with that, by the way? Knowing your heart, this is right. And somehow you do some weird spiritual and mental aerobics, you justify and you do it anyway. That's this word. You figure out some way to justify your behavior, your actions, or your words, and you're like, what in the world are you doing? Because you knew right to begin with. Right's that simple thing that you know that you argue. Do y'all argue, by the way, up here? <laughs> no words come out, but there's arguing going on in your mind. What are you arguing with? What you know is right. If you ever get sideways in a relationship, you need to think about this word. Because as a Christian, you know the right thing to do is to forgive, to love, and to be kind. And yet, you argue tirelessly. You'll even miss sleep. Arguing, justifying that you're remaining unforgiven, unkind. I'm like, really? But that's how we are. That's what it means to be lost. So we suppress the truth. We're so good at this. Romans 1.29, being filled with all of this junk, refusing to do what's right, Wickedness, greed, envy, evil, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, so on and so forth. Romans 2.8, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, there's your word we just talked about, apetho, but obey 
unrighteousness, refusing to do what's right, they have wrath and indignation. So you see the word relationship between this word and this word because they practically mean the same thing, right? You refuse to be convinced and you obey what is not right or you disobey what is right. Uh, more words. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, you see, there is none of this in God. And that's why I use Romans 3, 5. He is never this way because God always does what is right. He never fails. That's what makes him righteous. 1 John 1, 9 is the promise that we rejoice in. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all refusing to do what's right. So you see the relationship between sin and unrighteousness here, adikia. Um, you see the, the similarity. I mean, you see the fact that it's a synonym. It's the same thing. But you also understand that God is faithful to forgive with repentance. Even when you refuse to do what's right and you go before God and you confess that, He forgives that. It's absolutely amazing. 1 John 5, 17, all unrighteousness is sin. I think that. All right, why did I put this on here? Oh, yeah. Okay, so what this is, and I'll just point because... So you're super familiar with this, right? Exodus 34, 7. It's the revelation of the character of God. He keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So this is one of the most significant passages you're going to find in the Old Testament. This is where God says, I'm the Lord. Okay? This is who I am. So when they translated that a couple hundred years before Jesus came into Greek in the Septuagint, they're using all of our words. Here's our word for rejecting the law that we talked about. Here's this word, we refuse to do what's right in righteousness. And here's the word that we're studying, hamartia, or the sin itself. So in other words, whoever did that translation, the 70 men that wrote this Septuagint translation, are stacking up all these New Testament words that Paul kind of, what's the word, uh, unravels for us and helps us to understand. Um, Anti-law, anti-righteousness and then sin. So you go back up here, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives anti-law, unrighteousness, and sin. That's how they translate these out. See that? So these are really important words used all over the place. Next word. I'm trying to figure out. So... How do you write this in English, you think? Like that. This is the word sebase. Yeah, sebase. So you put the, this is no longer alpha privative. We've left that behind. This is my first non-alpha privative word. You put the U in front of it, U sebase, and it means piety, devout, reverent, godly. Okay? No, we haven't negated this yet. Yeah, we do negate this. This is not this is uh, this is another alpha privative. I'm sorry. So use the base is the word for godly. Most oftentimes translated godly. 
Acts 10.2, a devout man, Yusebase, devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, gave alms to the Jewish people, prayed to God continually. 2 Peter 2.9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the Yusebase from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So this is our term for godly or pious or devout, right? Alpha privative in front of it. We're going to negate all of that and all of this becomes, and I didn't change all this, without piety, undevout, irreverent, ungodly, okay? Didn't put my uns in front of those, but it negates godliness. Romans 1.18, talk about this Sunday, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. So you see this relationship between all these words, Eusebius uh, and Adikia and all these words. Yeah, that's used twice. All these words are suppressing the truth. They're synonyms, okay? They're ungodly. Second uh, Peter, Second Timothy 2.16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness. And then Vines writes this, this is pretty interesting. As anomia is disregard for God's law, asabia is disregard for God's person, if that helps you kind of distinguish between the two. One of them hates God's word, the other one hates God's person. And that is the only one that I put on that word. Questions about that word? I'm not going to build off that. Um... One more alpha privative. Several of y'all should remember this word, I think. Gnosko, knowledge to be aware, to know. It's got several different whatever configurations of the word. Romans 2.17, if you bear the name Jew, you rely upon the law, you boast in God, and you know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. So this is someone with understanding. Put the alpha privative in front of it, negates it, is to be uninformed, to not know, to be ignorant. Now, you would think that if somebody's ignorant, and that's not a bad word, they just don't know, that they're not morally responsible before God. He's like, I didn't know, right? But when you see how it's used in Scripture, they're still morally culpable. Romans 10, 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This is in reference or in context to the Jews who heard the gospel of faith in Christ alone. They rejected it, and Paul refers to it as a negation of the knowledge of God. So were they morally culpable? Yeah, they were, right? They were ignorant, but they were ignorant of their own doing, right? So you can see this as some usages as high culpability and some as lower culpability, but you never remove culpability or you never remove responsibility. If you're driving through a school zone and you get pulled over, 
And the guy was going, why are you going 50 in a school zone? He's like, I didn't know what the speed limit was. I didn't see it posted. Well, it's posted 35. Are you going to get a ticket? You're going to get a ticket. It doesn't matter if you didn't see 35. He's not going to say, well, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to stop you. 35, my apologies, going about your business. That's not how this works. So this helps you to understand this word, gnosko, right? You know, or at least you know that there's responsibility. You may be keeping yourself in the dark about the knowledge of God, but you're still going to be responsible for the knowledge of God, right? All right, these are just, just two words that are of no relationship to anything else. So I just put these in here for fun. Cocos, worthless. <laughs> you wish some of these words weren't in Scripture to describe us. Morally reprehensible, bad, or evil. Cocos. Romans 1.30, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. That's how it's translated in Romans 1. Romans 7, same. For the good that I want to do, Paul says, uh, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So Paul's using a very weighty word to talk about the sin in his own personal life. So when you read this, you're like, ah, surely this is not us. And Paul's like, yeah, well, it's me. So it is a very weighty word that points to us. Romans 7, I find then that the principle that evil is present in me, Paul says, the one who wants to do good, kakos. So it's used a number of occasions. Not a good word. All right, last word, and we're done. Paneros, Paneros, pertaining to being morally or socially worthless, wicked, evil, bad, base, worthless, vicious, degenerate. Same thing, okay? Usually translated evil. Uh, and I included this because it was kind of where Cody was at Sunday. Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Hebrews 3, 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving, without faith heart that falls away from the living God. Again, he's warning professing believers, don't have this kind of heart. Don't have this base, worthless, degenerate heart. So what kind of heart is base, worthless, the one that refuses to trust in Christ? Colossians 1.21, finally, I included this to give us a little bit of relief. He uses this word before our conversion. Although you were formally alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in paneros deeds, evil deeds. That's it. Question about that word? So after all this vocabulary about sin and you're crushed in your spirit, maybe the next time you hear Stephen Furtick, you'll throw something at the television or Joel Osteen and realize what they're saying is a bald-faced lie, right? These are the words that the Lord uses to describe my inner person apart from Him. 
and we're desperately in need of a new heart, one that will trust in Christ. So our theology, I think, is going to work out really smooth because we understand the vocabulary that God uses. Questions? Good thing about Jesus is all of these words that we've used, He's not one of them. And the great thing is, when we stand before God, for those of us who are trusted in Christ, He looks at the words that describe His Son and not the words that describe us. And it's only through that that we are justified and made right with God. We never want Him to look at us. We always want Him to look at His Son instead of us.